economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show today. I'm Nate Johnson, the producer and graduate assistant for the Gortney Institute. Today on our show, we have Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gortney Institute and Wayne Angel Chair of Economics. We also have Dr. Justin Clark, the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics. And finally, Dr. Peter Jacobson, the Gortney Professor of Economic Education and Research. All right. Well, today we have a special guest I'm excited to have on. We have Dr. Victor Clark, who's an Associate Professor of Economics at Florida Gulf Coast University in Fort Myers, Florida. He holds the BB&T Distinguished Professorship in Free Enterprise. He's been an affiliate scholar with the Acton Institute, somewhere where we've gone to some places where Victor and I have met at many conferences. And he was actually helped me put together some of the wording for the Gortney Institute when we were going for some of our funding. Professor Klar has a long, impressive record of publications, including his influential book, Economics in the Christian Perspective, Theory, Policy, and Life Choices, now in its 10th printing. He has a book out most recently that we'll talk about today, The Keynesian Revolution and the Rise of Economic Materialism. We're all dead. And then we're also going to get into his recent article, The Right Minimum Wage is Zero Dollars. That sounds like that is just awful to even say. How could somebody deserve to have zero dollars? Isn't the minimum wage one of the most important things confronting the United States today? I guess I'll just pop that one right out there, Victor. It's great to have you on. Yeah, great to be here, Russ. It's an interesting thing. If you go back and you look through the New York Times archives of editorials that they posted daily, you'll find one from 1987. And the headline is, The Right Minimum Wage, Zero Dollars. And the editorial board of the New York Times at the time in the late 80s, when I was finishing up my undergraduate career, they were persuaded by the prevailing economic research that even though minimum wages are intended to help young, inexperienced, low-skill workers with few connections, if you make it more costly for employers to take a chance on young, inexperienced, low-skilled workers with few connections, then you'll actually make it harder for them to make progress in the job market and later in life. So the way I normally put this when I talk to my students is, your employer will never pay you $15 if using what you produced in that hour of work, your employer can only turn around and sell it for, say, $12. That's a losing proposition for your employer, and your employer is not a charitable organization. So your employer would never pay you $15 to do something in an hour that he could, he or she could only sell for 12 bucks. On the other hand, if you do something that's worth, say, or if your employer pays you $8 and your employer can turn around and, and sell what you've done in that hour for, say, 10 then that's a winning proposition for employers. So when you think about the cost benefit from the employer's perspective, it makes sense that you should let individuals, employers, and potential employees negotiate over what hourly wage works best for them. Because the irony is, if you raise the minimum wage artificially, then anybody, say, who was able to keep their job at eight bucks an hour will no longer be employable. 
at a higher wage of $15. Now, it's great for people who are already productive and already connected and can do a lot and create a lot of value in that hour. But for the people who are just getting started, and I don't know about you, when I started my first job at 11, when I started my second job at 15, I was not very valuable and productive in that hour. And I was low-skilled, sub-minimum wage in both of those jobs. I'm really thankful that I got those opportunities and that my employer was able to take a chance on me in a way that really paid off for me over time. But so let me finish up. The bookend is just before the pandemic, the New York Times editorial board said, yeah, we need to double the minimum wage. That was the headline. So, of course, there's been a lot of change in the composition of the editorial board at the New York Times. But you have to wonder how in the world did the New York Times totally reverse themselves in what is, relatively speaking, a pretty short amount of time. And they've been persuaded by some occasional research that hasn't been able to find this linkage between an increase in the minimum wage and some reduction in employment. But the preponderance of the evidence still suggests that even if raising the minimum wage doesn't reduce employment, it might have effects that are bad for workers at other margins. So maybe the fringe benefits are less generous, or maybe the workplace is less enjoyable or less safe, or maybe you keep your job, but you have your hours reduced. So I make the argument in the public discourse that the New York Times was right the first time. The right minimum wage is zero dollars. And in fact, there's a Supreme Court precedent for this. The first minimum wage in the country was thrown out as unconstitutional because it got in the way of individuals to voluntarily contract. But that decision was reversed about 14 years later. And this was in the 1920s and 30s. Wow, that's interesting. So where have economists gone wrong since 1987? Apparently somebody had some sway to even get that headline. Uh, you know, what, what have we missed the ball on as, uh, as teaching economists here? Where, where, what do you think is the, the main driving factor of why that hasn't resonated further for more headlines down the road? Yeah, so unless you've taken a principles of economics course recently, and I realize most people listening, listening to this probably have not, They know that the economics that I was being taught in the late 80s when the New York Times published this first piece, it hasn't really changed the way that it's taught in principles of micro or principles of macro, that minimum wages, though they intend to help people who are the least productive currently, they'll actually have the strongest adverse effects on those very same people. Um, What changed, though, is there was some research, landmark study that was done by David Card and Alan Kruger. And they looked at a natural experiment when the local minimum wage was raised in the state of New Jersey. And at the same time, across the border in eastern Pennsylvania, the minimum wage was not raised. So this is what economists love. love. This is called a natural experiment. And so they looked where you'd expect to see changes in employment. And they looked at fast food workers in New Jersey and also fast food workers on the other side of the border over in eastern Pennsylvania. And at least that one time... In that one natural experiment, Cardin Kruger couldn't find what economic theory in the 80s and also economic theory in 2021 suggests they couldn't find a change in employment in New Jersey. Now, as you might imagine, because Cardin Kruger found kind of the unicorn of economics, oh, there wasn't displacement of workers, in particular in fast food jobs where you'd expect to find low skilled, young, inexperienced workers. A lot of people took a really close look at their methodology. And it's possible that there was a change in employment, but Cardin Kruger may have missed it. And this is for a couple of reasons, and I'll run these down really quickly, Russ. One is 
rather than use something like hard data from employment records, Cardin Kruger called fast food managers to interview them about their change in employment. So you had to trust the memory of managers at fast food restaurants. And honestly, if their memories weren't right, or if they didn't want to seem too mean, they might have said that, oh, we didn't let anybody go at all. So that's a possibility. Another one is that they didn't focus on the hours worked. They looked only at employment levels. So if the change, the marginal change on the part of employers was they cut individuals' hours, then that also missed it. So there are lots of, lots of ways that they may have missed things, including using just surveys. Another limitation is they only looked in the place where they expected to find the change, fast food workers, and they didn't look in other places as well. So lots of work has been done on the minimum wage. And in fact, Cardin Kruger generated a new decade and a half, two decades and a half of research to investigate further the minimum wage and whether or not it has the effect that we describe in our principles courses. I think that the profession now is universally agreed that, as I mentioned earlier, even if you don't discover changes in the number of hours worked or the level of employment, you'll probably notice it otherwise in terms of other adverse impacts on young, inexperienced, low-skilled workers. Again, things like fringe benefits, how generous and safe and kind the workplace is, those sorts of things. Victor, I had a question for you. Um, yeah. First, a comment and then a question. So I, I am fully on board with what you're saying about the minimum wage and how it harms low-skilled workers, I mean, especially um, young low-skilled workers who haven't been able to establish themselves in the market yet. One of the things I usually say that I'm arguing about the minimum wage to people is, you know, why stop at 15? Why not 30? Why not a million dollars an hour? How many people do you think would get their first job with the minimum wage was a million dollars an hour? But one of the things that seems to me important is that increasingly lately, we have seen things like the demand that all wage workers be provided health care and things like that. And it seems like when we tie all, when we tie a bunch of other things to employment, that actually uh, kind of shackles people to their jobs and makes it more expensive for people to change jobs. And I take it that if we value a low minimum wage, we want the marketplace to be dynamic so that people can change jobs as quickly as possible and capitalize on you know, the investment that they put in themselves and the skills that they've made. So I wonder if if we are arguing for minimum wage, we also need to point out that, look, this system works best when the economy is dynamic and things like your health care aren't tied to a particular job that you have. So maybe do you think that if we are arguing for the minimum wage, it makes sense also to point these other things out that we also want you know, we don't want all of your services to be tied to a particular job that you have. Does that make sense? Yeah. In fact, economists have a name for this phenomenon. It's called job lock. That normally an individual working job A might consider job B if job B provides better wages, better pay for meaning, more meaningful work, more fun colleagues. People normally would be interested in comparing where they are against the opportunity cost in job B and ask themselves whether or not they'd be better off in job B. But if they feel like they're currently chained to job A because of some 
pecuniary or maybe not so pecuniary benefit, then economists refer to that as job lock. And actually, that was one of the arguments that economists made for things like the Affordable Care Act and ending the um, exceptions for things like pre-existing conditions. If you knew that you can move from job A to job B and still be insurable at job B, then you might be much more likely to explore other options and to think about moving to job B, especially if, as you point out, that would be a better thing over the longer term, not only for the individual because they'd be happier and healthier and more fulfilled at work, but also it would be good for long-term growth and development of the economy. So I agree completely. The more options that individuals have, and this is my definition of economic freedom, more options, right? The possibilities that are enhanced when you participate in a free society, when you don't feel constrained for whatever reason to a particular employment opportunity, then it encourages encourages you to think seriously and carefully about what you could be doing instead that many in ways that many of us aren't sort of forced to think about because we don't have to think about it, or maybe we're afraid to think about it because we don't want to mess up a really good thing at our present employer. Wasn't the minimum wage also in those studies a relatively mild incremental change? Like, I, I don't remember for sure. You probably have it off the top of your head, but let's say I know there's studies that go from 725 to 8 or to 9. And to go from 725 to 15, there's certainly no economic study that I'm aware of that has any sort of evidence. And I, I think that would just, we'd really see the detrimental effects that way of, of some business closures, which would be leading people to get that minimum wage of zero real quick or some of some of those people getting wages of zero. Is that is that a fair characterization? I, I can't remember what the biggest leap is in, in minimum wage analysis. So I think that both of you bring up an excellent point, which is if you're an advocate for the minimum wage, then you should also be called upon to tell people what the best one would be, right? It's if, if you're an at minimum wage advocate, you probably don't think the best one is zero dollars like the New York Times did in the late 80s. You probably think that it's 15, but well, what exactly, right? If there's an optimal number that um, increases pay for people who are currently earning the minimum wage and doesn't cause too much job loss, what would that magic number be? So the Congressional Budget Office has recently looked at, well, what if we did raise the national minimum to 15? And while they say the good news would be that we would move, well, I think it's 900,000 individuals out of poverty and out below the poverty line, we would reduce the number of jobs by more than that, by I think a million and a half. So economics, like it or not, it's born of trade-offs. And someone out there who's really good at econometrics and is a champion for the minimum wage should be able to do some empirical analysis and tell you what the ideal optimal number would be that would do some good, but not cause too much damage. Now, to be fair, there is one article, I think it's in the Journal of Political Economy, that actually digs into the numbers and tries to do this for different localities across the country. But again, they do it for localities. They don't do it for the nation because every labor market across the country is different from every other labor market. Victor, this kind of makes me think, so I, I've been mulling over this question of how has the New York Times editorial board, despite, you know, changes in composition, that aside, and so easily changed over these last few years. And my first thought goes to economists like, and especially Milton Friedman, who at one time we had someone named Milton Friedman, who the public knew and understood, a great communicator, a great mind, and a great economist. 
And so uh, through his communication, I think maybe made a very big impact and, and even like, you know, circles like press, the intelligence and things like that, because he was so persuasive. And so, you know, this may be a, a transition of a sorts, but when I think of economists, I, the, the two most influential, uh, at least in, in the sense of the public, I think, have been Milton Friedman and the one that you've written your book about, John Maynard Keynes, who has been extremely uh, persuasive. But it seems like the legacy of Keynes has lasted a very long time, but the legacy of Friedman uh, seems to have faded away at least a little bit. And I think the New York Times editorial piece is a good example of this. So why do you think that is? Why is it that the legacy of someone like Keynes sticks around, the legacy of Friedman seems to fade away? Yeah, so that's a really good question, and I'm sure we'll talk more about this in the next segment. But I think there's a fundamental disagreement in terms of what the economy is and what an economy is for. I think economists like Friedman and Austrian economists like Friedrich Hayek they, and Wilhelm Repke, they understood that the economy isn't this big thing that has national GDP annually of 20 something trillion dollars. It's not the unemployment rate. It's not the inflation rate. The economy is you and the economy is I. And the economy is the thing that gives us direction in terms of how to invest our time in the service of others. And when we serve others well, life also becomes better for us. People who work from a Keynesian perspective, they think that, no, the economy is something that we need to nurture and guide. And heaven forbid that we espouse government ownership because that would be communism and we would never do that. But if we eliminate some choices, then we can get people who we think we understand reasonably well. We can sort of game it and we can get them to make the choices we prefer rather than the choices that they would make if they were free to choose among a variety of alternatives. All right. Yeah, it looks like a good time to head into our break as a little bit of a cliffhanger. Boy, you really gave me a nice way of with the way you just said that. And I, I imagine the economy is the dashboard for people. Like it's the one giving you indicators of turning left, turning right, the oil pressure, the whatever. It gives you indicators of how you can better live your own life. And that's a new revelation for me. I love learning new things about economics, talking to great minds like yourself. So when we come back from break, we can expand on that. And I, I think this sounds like there's a little correlation with the Alan Kruger. Once an economist finds one little thing that gives a politician a green light on a, on a policy they want to see done, and I, I kind of see the, a connection there with Keynes maybe on why we've uh, been in the position we are. So we'll be back in just a bit. Please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. If you use iTunes, please consider giving us a five-star review. It helps other people find us. We'd like to do a mailbag episode, so please send your questions to info at gortneyinstitute.org. The Gortney Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom and justice and its impact on human flourishing, faith and economics in action. Uh, we have some student groups uh, together. Uh, one we're wrapping up today, our last pizza luncheon, talking about urbit and uh, freedom of identity uh, on the internet and some other fun student things that we do in regard to justice and economic freedom. If you or somebody else, you know, is looking for a college like that, contact Peter, Justin, or Russ today. Don't forget to check our show notes for this episode at podcast.123povertysucks.org. Okay, and we're back. Uh, so excited to hear Victor talk a little bit more about this dashboard. I, I, I really, as I left off with, 
kind of a revelation for me to, I, I've said to my students for years and years since the beginning, even back when I was a graduate student, uh, you're the economy, I'm the economy, but I never thought about framing the economy as a dashboard or like a, a useful tool that's giving us signals. And that's really the economy, not some big marvelous engine. And um, so Victor, uh, if you could expand on that, that'd be great. Yeah, it's interesting. Up until about the 1930s, when John Maynard Keynes was writing prolifically, including his most famous book, The General Theory of Employment, Interest, and Money, the economy wasn't a word that people used. Not even the economists used the word the economy. Um, before that, economy meant something like household management or good stewardship, or for the ancient Greeks, it meant making wise choices in the pursuit of a good life. Um, but it really wasn't until the 1930s that we started to reify and treat the economy as though it's the, as though it's this thing that we can manage and that's something we're going to talk in terms of and say things like, how's the economy doing? And you can find this in the general theory. In the general theory, if my memory's right, because I've read the whole thing, which I do not recommend to your listeners because it's a tough go. But I think Keynes himself only mentions that uses the word the economy three times in the whole book, and the book runs nearly 400 pages. Most of the time when Keynes talks about the economy, he uses expressions like economic society. And so even for Keynes, who we think of as the father of modern macroeconomics, he himself didn't use this word, which is quite different from, if you think about today, the Federal Reserve System. They have a dual mandate that they're charged by Congress with focusing on, full employment and price stability. This does not sound like an economy is a garden in which you and I are free to discover how to be of service to each other. They're charged with full employment and price stability. Now, hear me. I'm not saying that full employment is bad, and I'm not saying that price stability is bad. In fact, I wish we had more price stability, especially over time. But um, if, if your focus is those things and not what opportunities are like for individuals, in the economy, then you're kind of missing the point. So I would argue that when we do have good numbers on the dashboard of the economy, when we do over time have on average full employment, and we do on average have price stability, those are healthy vital signs of an economic patient, if you want to use a medical analogy, those are healthy vital signs of an economy that's doing well. But if you make those your focus, then you're tempted to do all manner of things to try to make the dials and the gauges look better, just like you might with a patient who has, I don't know, high blood pressure, right? The way to really fix that is diet, exercise, making wise choices, and you can make somebody's blood pressure go down. You could give them high blood pressure medicine as maybe a second option, but that's not the best option. And taking the medication doesn't mean you're more healthy. It just means you've been able to make that number lower than it would otherwise be. So if we thought more about economic society as, um, uh, as giving good medical care to the patient, then we would want to encourage the patient to make great choices and to live a lifestyle of meaning and purpose and fulfillment and not think about, oh, well, we made GDP go up this quarter. We made GDP rise at 4% this year. Sure, I think that's a great point, focusing on the name of the field. And so I think the focus on economics has sort of turned us towards these, these engineers. Another interesting thing on this note is that Adam Smith, when he referred to eco economics, called it political economy. And this is what it was often called, linked to the political sphere. And so I think something else, the movement towards 
just economics has, uh, what that indicates is that economists have sort of unlinked the idea of economics from the institutional environment that we're all in. And I think that it's a very important link that, you know, our economy doesn't exist in the abstract by itself. We can't just, you know, mess with GDP, but there's all these politi political incentives in the background and things like that going on. And unlinking those two things is uh, uh, just uh, intellectually uh, not the best thing to do. And I think you make a really good point about the state of the discipline, because our version in economics of the fact-value dichotomy, where we separated facts from opinion, we call it the positive-normative distinction in economics. Positive is merely descriptive. Hey, this is how things work. Normative is, well, what should we do, or what ought we to do, or what are some social goals that are worth pursuing? Economists tend to be mute or at least they try to be mute on these normative kinds of questions because they want to be taken seriously and they want to be brought in not as advisors, but as technicians who can help you understand, well, if you wanted to pursue this goal, these are some ways that you could do it. So it was actually John Maynard Keynes' father, John Neville Keynes, who worked out once and for all in the 1920s, the lasting distinction between positive and normative economics. And even though Neville Keynes wasn't a prolific writer like his son Maynard, his lasting legacy is articulating at Cambridge once and for all this for our version of the fact-value distinction, positive versus normative economics. And I think you're right. I think if economists were more willing to be engaged on normative questions, then we could restore economics to its roots, deep roots, that it historically had in moral philosophy. Yeah, absolutely. Was it Mises or Hayek? Is the one, the two that are coming to mind for praxeology, which I believe is the focus of exchange of individuals, right? That, that, the, that that's what we're really studying uh, when we study economics is the exchange of individuals and then ultimately leading to some of the things we're talking about with institutions. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Mises is most closely associated with praxeology and it's most closely associated with his masterwork, Human Action. Yeah, I think that's where I saw it. Yeah, and there, there's a focus on Mises of that we go one step further from praxeology into catalaxy, which is oh, catalaxy, which is our, our markets and exchanges and things like that. Praxeology focusing on human action, catalaxy on the market and the interactions that happen. And a lot of great economists have this theme. James Buchanan and Marx look at politics as exchange, and so really refocusing economics as exchange is a direction. Victor, I had a question about. Um, personality and um and in, in your book on Keynes. so in the 20th century in, in physics one of the things that's interesting is that Niels Bohr kind of ruled the roost and uh, even I think Eugene Wigner said that meeting Bohr convinced him that people like Gandhi and Jesus actually walked the earth because Niels Bohr was such an, an amazing personality and one of the things about the Copenhagen interpretation that Niels Bohr put forward is that it's completely incomprehensible. But anybody who met with Bohr came up, uh, came away from meeting Bohr spouting these incomprehensible things. Hmm. And it seems to me that I wonder if you think something like that is the case with Keynes too, because um, you know when I read Keynes, I I really can't make heads or tails of a lot of what's going on there. But even you're, if you you're not some, alone, <laughs> but yeah, even if you know you look at somebody who's supposed to be like the arch nemesis of Keynes, like Hayek, um, you read what Hayek says about Keynes, 
And Hayek speaks of Keynes in glowing terms as, you know, a really first-rate mind. So I'm wondering if you think that there's, in addition to what Russ said earlier about Keynes telling policymakers what they want to hear, is there something about maybe Keynes is kind of, did he have a kind of magnetic personality too? And is that something that we have to account for with the popularity of his ideas? Yeah, so there's so much to talk about here. Um, Keynes was pretty influential already before the general theory came out in British society. He was kind of a celebrity. He was married to a famous ballerina. He'd also wrote a bestseller in the 1920s called The Economic Consequences of the Peace, which was about working out treaties in the wake of World War One. And the book was kind of salacious. It was, you know, it would be sort of a gossipy book by today's standards because he talked more about the individuals who were participating and brokering those negotiations. And he talked about them in a way that was not only not only about treaty and policy, but also about their personal peccadilloes and that sort of thing. So Keynes was already a smash in Britain. And Keynes also understood that marketing matters a lot. So Keynes had already, even before the general theory came out in 1936, he'd been at the University of Chicago right? The place that uh, where Frank Knight was at the time and Frank Knight's teacher, of course, or, and Frank Knight, of course, taught Milton Friedman. So Keynes had gone to the University of Chicago to already pitch these ideas that were found in the general theory in the early days of the Great Depression. And if you read some of the correspondence, even among Chicago, University of Chicago economists at the time in the 30s, they were already Keynesian-minded. They weren't so interested in using monetary policy to try to jumpstart the economy in the Great Depression, but they were pretty keen on using fiscal policy at the time. So it's there's actually a, a short book by J. Ronnie Davis calls, called um, The New Economic... Oh, see if I can get this right. The... It's a clever title, but it escapes me right now. But it's J. Ronnie, and that's R-O-N-N-I-E, Davis. And he actually looks at personal correspondence and letters that University of Chicago economists wrote in this period. And you can see that the ground was already fertile in what you would think of as a free marketplace for these ideas to take hold. The other thing I'll mention is Milton Friedman understood the impact that Keynes was having. And so Friedman began making free market arguments, but using the technical apparatuses of good Keynesians, because he felt like the only way to be persuasive on policy issues was to have mathematical models and frame things in the way that good Keynesians had. The problem with this approach is, and we're back to the dashboard, it surrendered the terms of the debate to things like inflation, unemployment, price stability, long-term economic growth, rather than remaining focused on the personal nature of exchange and economic interactions. And, and for our listeners, Victor, I, we may have gotten too deep into the weeds before this, just to, okay. when, when I brought I brought it up and didn't, I, I tried to be respectful of this, but Peter was kind of giving me a, a nod to something. So uh, for our listeners, Keynesian type stuff, Great Depression, 1930s, general theory comes out, it really was about using government as something to make corrections and help people out, right? It was kind of our first introduction to bigger and bigger safety nets and other things. Uh, so the use of government to help smooth out the ups and downs of the economy is the way I like to think of it. And now you're introducing Friedman, I think, was really countering with that that's going to have some price effects was his big 
uh, contribution that, hey, I, I can use your math and show how this is going to lead to inflation, which ultimately came to roost. But now we seem to be still stuck now in 2021 with Keynesian policies. And that circles us back to, I think, the, poli- the political part of this, that the politicians want, they like the Keynesian story because it empowers them. Uh, bigger government means job security for them. And uh, free market thoughts means get out of the way government and keep government limited. And so now we're in this kind of classic struggle. Well, and I think uh, Victor made a good point at the end there, which addressed my earlier question really well, uh, which is that uh, Friedman uh, did adopt the, the Keynesian framework. Uh, he, uh, the way I've heard it put before is Keynesian, or Friedman used, used Keynesianism to refute the Keynesian economists at the time. But the problem with that is uh, there's a great uh, macroeconomic history book called From Snowden and Bain. And they, they point out in that book that new Keynesianism, which is sort of the evolution of what Keynesianism has become today, could just as easily be called new monetarism, which is what Milton Friedman's macroeconomic project was called, was monetarism. Because really, Friedman's framework was so compatible that it essentially was synthesized into new Keynesianism. Uh, the pieces of it that were unique were taken into new Keynesianism. Uh, so I think that's a really interesting point. I hadn't thought of that before. What is the torch that you think we need to continue to Perry, certainly one of the reasons I developed the Gorton Institute is to bring the good word of economics to the masses. And I'm thinking like, you know, Friedman used Keynesian mathematics to try to battle him. And that battle has apparently been lost to some degree in 2021. I love this dashboard idea. What, how, do we, how, do we, how do we get things back to uh, mining free markets more? Yeah, so there's a quote in there's a quote in there's a line in the general theory that I find really chilling in retrospect. And the line is consumption to repeat the obvious is the sole end of all economic activity. I don't know about you, but consumption is not my purpose on this planet. But Keynes was acting and created models as though consumption is the sole end of economic activity. So employment is great. Doesn't matter whether you like the job. <laughs> uh, doesn't matter what the alternatives are. If if our job is to make sure that you can earn money and avoid leisure, because we sort of assume that um, I'm sorry, avoid labor and get money, then you're thinking really narrowly about the human person. And human and human beings are just so much more than any macroeconomic reduction can make them. So I don't know about you. There are things that I really enjoy doing and things that I know about myself and my closest friends may know about myself that a policymaker in Washington, D.C. or somewhere far away can never, ever know about me. So they have to work from a caricature of what a human being is and what a human being cares about. And don't get me wrong, being able to pay your bills is really important, but it's not the only thing. Yeah, absolutely. And that kind of, you're speaking about the human flourishing part of our Gorton Institute mission and, and uh, certainly this being the Faith and Economics podcast, maybe you could speak a little bit more about that on, on how you think uh, faith could play a bigger role in helping to fix things. Yeah, it's, um, I think it's really unfortunate that the way that we're generous now in our society has become a lot of outsourcing. You know, we have lots of social programs. One of the great things about being successful economically and having a lot of material prosperity is you can fund lots and lots and lots of things. But often the activities that we fund in an effort to care for the poor 
again, they, they work from the same sort of cookie cutter perspective that I described a moment ago. And we assume that, oh, what's good for one single mom in one county across the United States? It's also good for a single dad in a totally different county with different worldview, different life goals, different short-term goals, different immediate needs. And we don't give individuals the space to make more effective choices that they would make if they had the freedom to make those choices. So you've probably heard, you may have even talked on another podcast episode about what critics of the social safety net sometimes refer to as the welfare cliff. And the idea behind the welfare cliff is for, say, a single mom with two kids in suburban Chicago, if you stack all the means-tested benefits available to her, they're really generous. They're staggeringly generous, and it's a sign of the prosperity that we all enjoy together. But because all of those programs are means-tested, and that's assuming that the single mom can navigate the bureaucracy to access all of those benefits, as she pursues higher-paying work opportunities, all of those means-tested programs, all of that means-tested support, it all crumbles and vanishes. So we've created this crazy incentive where instead of encouraging a young single mom to pursue a better life and to pursue a career, instead we make it so generous to stay in poverty or somewhere near the poverty line that we get in the way of the human activity that would happen otherwise. So the question then is, what are we going to change? Are we going to change the policies to create the welfare cliff? Or is the church and our communities going to figure out how to be partners with that single mom and help her navigate from being trapped in the social safety net to pursuing a life of meaning and purpose and self-reliance. And I think that's that's the question of our time. I'm not that hopeful that we'll change the policy in the short term, but we can change how we think about reaching out to others who really need personal understanding and more immediate knowledge of the case of every individual. Wow. Well, that looks like some great closing comments here as we wind down. Does anybody else have any last last words? All right. Well, Victor, that that was awesome. Uh, we're going to hear the minimum wage article and your book references uh, for our listeners so they can uh, check out uh, some of the stuff that you've published and done. And we certainly appreciate you having being on the podcast today. Yeah, thanks, Russ. Yeah, it was great. So this has been a production of the Gordon Institute here at Ottawa University. We appreciate you all listening and uh, hope that you can Give us a nice rating if you think that way, because that helps other people find us uh, on the internet. And so other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.